Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My guest today is an academic and historian who has firmly put her stamp on everything from graphic design and feminism to the creation of fanzines. She's a Texan who observed rioting in her youth and, amid the politically charged atmosphere of 1980s America, headed the, to the UK to live in London. In pursuing a career as an academic, Teal Triggs has been, remained ever inquisitive over the way in which the public consumes information. She's trained the microscope on the Pussy Galore typeface in Fuse 12 propaganda and looked at the role of women in craft and design. She's authored to an eponymous book on fanzines and, as we meet in the shadow of the Royal Albert Hall at the Royal College of Art, where she's an associate dean, I begin by asking her about the subject dear to my heart. First of all, thanks very much for asking me to, uh, to be involved in this interview. Uh, any excuse to talk <laughs> about zines. Um, I think it's really important uh, for me that what the zines represent are um, individuals mm. um, or they're collectives that have created the zines mm. and it's the, the notion of the hand so the handmade the yeah. do-it-yourself uh, it's individuals who want to say something to somebody else mm. uh, about their passions and that takes a lot of respect mm. I think from a reader's perspective mm. um, I find zines in general um, a really accessible medium and if I don't know something I, and if I can read a zine and I get one or two tidbits of information out of it or an mm. opinion or where a gig's going to be or you know where you can shop for the latest Pez dispensers um, whatever it happens to be I think there is a, a value in terms of this as a medium of communication. Mm. And they're just lovely things to hold. And they say something about the human-centeredness mm. that I think in this day and age, you know, we, we tend to forget about uh, because of digital technologies and everything is our handheld mobile phone and mm. it's PDF downloads and it's, you know, everything that has to do with uh, the immaterial, the intangible. Yes. But these things are real. You can hold them. You can, you can feel a sense of passion and commitment and energy from the person that's made them. So they're special, special objects. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. intrinsically, do you think that's what makes a, a good zine, the, the amount of sort of passion that someone's put into it? Or is it more about being very specific on a certain subject? I, I think it's a combination. I think um, the zines that work for me, and all of them do on one level or another, mm. as you're suggesting in, in, in your question, but I think what it does for me is it, it actually says this is an individual or, as I said, a, a collaborative uh, piece of work, and there's a voice or voices that come along with that. Mm. And I think it's the fact that there's somebody who has a space to actually say something and take the time to say something means that we should perhaps read it, listen to it, mm. engage with it in some kind of way. Mm. And I think it's that connection between the maker, uh, the producer, the reader, the listener, again, depending on what kind of form the zines are taking. Yes. 
So I think there's there's something intrinsic in in, in that kind of act of exchange Absolutely. as well. Uh, so one of your other big passions, of course, is music. I'm delighted. I can't wait to, to hear what your choices are today. Uh, what's the first song that you've got for us? Well, what I decided to do in looking at um, these, I think, eight songs mm. that uh, you asked me to, to consider uh, for today is to kind of think back about uh, what's still in my collection so where's the timelessness to some of the, uh, the music that, that we're going to talk about? The first song um, I want to talk about has to come from the monkeys. <laughs> and this says a little bit about kind of my upbringing and mm. my age, unfortunately. Um, that growing up in the U.S. and in Texas in particular, mm. at a time when pop culture and pop music was kind of coming to the fore, mm. and a band like the Monkees coming out in 1967 with specifically Pleasant Valley Sunday, mm. which is my all-time favorite, I think. Um, I knew all the words. I knew, you know, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, Mickey Dolenz, and Peter Dwork. You know, they were all there as, yeah. as characters. So I watched the TV show, I did the full fan thing, um, got the autographs, and listened to their music. So you were sat right there in front of the TV? And just watched them, mm. yeah. So 1960s, think of the American living room, uh, just sitting on a Saturday afternoon watching you know, the band play and the kind of scenarios. <laughs> Fantastic, that was The Monkees. As I tell you, you mentioned uh, growing up in Texas. There. Can you describe what your uh, upbringing was like? And, uh, you know, for us here in the UK, uh, growing up in Texas seems quite an, an alien situation. What was it like? I think the, the, the first question I used to get when I uh, first moved over here uh, to London was, uh, did you have a horse? And did you take the horse to school? <laughs> did you ride it to school? Yes. And I said, uh, no, I didn't have a horse, but I had friends that had horses. <laughs> right. Uh, the second question is, uh, do you have an oil well? <laughs> uh, no, but I know people that do have an oil well. Right. Um, Texas has that kind of, you know, myth about it. You know, it's mm. the cowboys, it's the Wild West. Yes. And that does permeate. Mm. I mean, there is a very strong cowboy culture there. And, mm. of course, impacts the music scene as yes. well. Um, but growing up there, um, I was born in the, the 1950s at a, a time when, you know, the American dream was mm. beginning to emerge as we moved into the 60s. And, you know, uh, JFK and, you know, this whole kind of notion that we, we as Americans had some place to go and mm. we, we wanted to get there in a hurry. Yes. And it was about family values. Um, I definitely remember leaving the, the front door open. Nobody was worried about security. It was very much kind of a, a community feel. Everybody looked after everybody else. Mm. And I was fortunate. I grew up in, in Austin, mm. Texas, which... Um, Still today, it's an amazing <laughs> reputation as, yes. as a music capital. So the kind of first introductions to not only, um, you know, 
um, going to school and kind of doing the thing that everybody was doing at that mm. time. But having this opportunity, just that the music kind of permeated through. Mm. Um, my dad was also uh, teaching at the University of Texas mm. at Austin in the art department. Um, mm. He was a graphic designer, ran his own design studio. Yes. And uh, he started teaching there in 1968, mm. right when the, um, the riots on campus were taking place Absolutely. and the student protest. Yes. And I distinctly remember going to campus and just kind of watching the scene unfold yes. in front of me. So you felt a part of something actually quite exciting. Absolutely. Um, and you began to have a, have a bigger worldview, you know, the Vietnam War yes. and the veterans and you know, different presidents and being, JFK being shot and, you know, yes. all that coming through in terms of being a Texan. But that flip side of it, um, in terms of it being a really fun place to grow up. Mm. There, uh, at that time, our house was um, what would be considered now, you know, the kind of suburbs at the edge of the city. Mm. Going back, my brother still lives in the same house. It's right in the middle yeah. of the city. So right. it says something about, you know, growth uh, in these smaller cities at that time. Mm. But you did feel like you were at the center of something. And culturally, you know, Dad had Mad Magazine sitting mm. on the table. He picked up the Texas Rag, yeah. uh, which was a university publication. So all the underground publications mm. would be in the house. Uh, he knew a lot of the uh, originators, having you know taught a lot of them in terms of illustrators and designers. Yes. So being in the middle of that mm. was just an amazing experience as a kid. And can you remember what your feelings were? You mentioned obviously the American dream ideal there and, uh, and Vietnam. And can you remember what your opinions were at the time? And, and do you think that your perspective on the world now is, is that much different? Very early on, um, you know, things like the Ku Klux Klan were happening in Texas, well, still is, yes. as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Um, and being exposed to kind of racial issues. Mm. I grew up in a very multicultural neighborhood. Mm. Uh, it wasn't an issue until somebody made it an issue as far as we were concerned. And there were all sorts of you know, ways of, of problematizing what was going on at that point. Mm. But I think, yeah, those formative years are absolutely key and, and gave me a perspective that you know, I wouldn't change. Mm. You know, I think I'm a lot... I like to think of myself quite open-minded. Yes. I'm a good listener. Yes. Um, and there's room for everybody. And I think those early years were, were quite important. So speaking of listening, what should we listen to now? Well, we kind of move into um, the mid-1970s, in fact, 1975. Mm. And I had just graduated from uh, Crockett High School mm. uh, in Austin and was going to university. And we uh, lived in a, an apartment complex mm. off of Enfield Road, and it was about 10 units there, mm. so maybe about 15 people. Mm. And one summer's evening, somebody had brought back from the coast um, a huge basket of shrimp mm. and lots of wine, and so we had a little shrimp festival. <laughs> and uh, one of my neighbors put on uh, the record player, Patty Smith, uh, the horses album mm. and Gloria yes. just kind of penetrated the evening, the yeah. hot, muggy summertime evening mm. uh, of Austin, Texas, and we could sit there and eat our shrimp and drink our beer, yeah. our glasses of wine, uh, listening to this amazing music which we hadn't heard before. Yeah, absolutely. so Patty Smith. Fantastic. We'll be shouting each letter as it comes. Aren't we? <laughs> Great stuff.
come back here with uh, Teal Tricks. Uh, Teal, can you tell me, when did you first discover a fanzine? Did you have any idea of what one was when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, I think as I mentioned earlier, the house was kind of full of underground publications, and mm. it's slightly different than a fanzine, but it's still, you know, alternative press. Mm. So I was aware that there was something else going on. And I think um, I had seen fanzines uh, for some of the, the punk gigs in Texas mm. uh, floating around, but I didn't really engage with them at that point. Mm. And it wasn't really until I came to London and um, a friend of mine um, had located in a trash bin somewhere in <laughs> London um, a fanzine. And he said, oh, I think Teal would like this. Yes. And he brought it to me and it was the first issue of Sniffing Glue. So, um, yeah. great introduction <laughs> to looking at this punk scene and thinking, my God, there's something, you know, fabulous going on here. And at that point, I just got very interested and started collecting. Mm. Uh, of course, Sniffing Glue, widely seen as uh, the... Kind of the granddaddy. Yeah, of, yeah, the granddaddy. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't, I'm not sure Mark Perry would want to see himself like that. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he'll take it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, so your fascination was uh, with both the... Both what was written, but also the design that you've got a key Absolutely. For, um, I had, had trained as a graphic designer and photographer mm. uh, for my undergraduate degree at the University of Texas. And so I was always quite interested in seeing how people put books and magazines and so forth together, different kinds of publications. Mm. Um, so I look at these things not only for their content, but how the content's shaped by its form. Yes. And what the visual language, or the graphic language in particular happens to be and I think punk epitomizes how the producers of these scenes were able to take um, the kind of intensity of the music mm. and the intensity of the environment in which the, the, the you know political, social mm. and cultural activities were going on mm. uh, in the late 70s and put it together visually mm. to really represent this kind of angst yes. that was going on amongst the, the, the youth. Yes. And, um, so I think they're beautiful objects uh, as a result of that, but not precious, and I think that's that's really key. Yes, absolutely, and I, when I think about making my fanzine shadow play, you know, I, I'm not, I think you're right, it's not, it's not about being precious about things, it's about letting the imperfection show through, because that's that in a way is what separates it from mainstream media and, and as well as some of the content and that kind of thing. So, um, and I think the next band you're going to talk about are also, uh, you know, very influential in that scene. Yes, we're... yeah, and it kind of, in a way, has a, a tangential link back to Texas mm. because uh, the next band I want to talk to, talk about is uh, is the Clash. Mm. Uh, should I stay or should I go? Uh, mm. From the 1982. And the tangential link has to do with the fact that Joe Strummer and Joe Ely, and mm. Joe Ely being another favorite of the Austin and Texas music scene, um, obviously knew each other mm. and participated uh, together, I think, on an album at some point. Yes. I think Joe was singing Spanish or, or what have you. Mm. Um, so I think that's, again, quite a nice link. And yes. Um, I mean, you can't beat the Clash, and you can't no. beat you know the kind of wonderful tune mm. that "Should I Stay, Should I Go" actually uh, gets you know the community participating, Absolutely. everybody singing along. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. Well, let's get singing along then. This is uh, "Should I Stay or Should I Go" by the Clash. Darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine 
I'll be here till the end of time So you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go It's always tease, tease, tease You're happy when I'm on my knees One day is fine and next is black So if you want me off your back Well come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go that was The Clash. Uh, so, Till, can you tell me about um, your perception of how graphic design has changed in the time that you've been studying and writing about it? And uh, has, presumably, the change in technology has, has, has clearly had a, a big factor within it, but do you think there are generally, uh, is there generally a change in the way that people approach the discipline? Um, gosh, that's a really big question. <laughs> I feel the lecture coming on. Yeah, but <laughs> um, I think there, I think there has been a change in graphic design, and mm. the the change I feel is in that there's a greater awareness now from the general public about the value of graphic design. Mm. And I think early on, uh, designers did what they did. Um, they were engaging with their clients, you know, creating messages, being persuasive, being informative. Yeah. And I think now that you know, technology, that desktop publishing, prompted you know, a plethora of little cottage industries, uh, often untrained. So you know, if, if someone um, wanted a leaflet for the local library group, mm. they had that opportunity to design something on, on the... The, the early Macs or what have you. Yes. Um, so I think there's awareness. Now, whether or not that's a good or a bad awareness, um, we, you know, the jury's yes. still out on that. Mm. But I think what it's done uh, for us professionally is actually given us an opportunity to um, look at different ways that graphic design might be used and mm. might be applied. So it's a, it's a way of thinking. Uh, mm. It's a lens through which different kinds of problems and contexts mm. can be understood and problematized yes. and then solutions found uh, for it. Yes. So, yeah, and I think, um, I don't know, I don't know if Neville liked me saying this, but I think one of my greatest memories is seeing Neville Brody on the front page of Blueprint magazine mm. and realizing mm. that there uh, in the 90s was this kind of celebrity, cult of celebrity yes. emerging within uh, graphic design. Mm. And I think now there's still a cult of celebrity, but mm. I think there's a great awareness that these celebrities did have something to contribute, that they were really, you know, at the forefront of mm. looking at different ways of communicating. Yes. I think the other thing, of course, is street signs. And um, people like um, Jacques Kinnear and Margaret Calvert mm. doing the highway signage um, yes. and, and typography for that, it's still, it's still out there. People yeah. are driving by it and using it as a wayfinding system. Absolutely. So I think things like that that, you know, are applied and have kind mm. of a usefulness to them, I yes. think, is, uh, you know, quite what, exciting. Yeah. What do you have on the wall at home? Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of posters from the Armadillo World Headquarters, <laughs> circa 1970. Right. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I've got a real range of things. I've got a lot of student work mm-hmm. up on the walls. Um, I have a lot of my dad's paintings from the 40s. Um, mm-hmm. He started off as a painter before he became a designer. Mm. So, yeah, it's very eclectic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't have any posters up on the wall no. um, at the moment. So. <laughs> uh, so what's the next piece of music you've got for us? Uh, the next piece I have, coming back to the kind of art school tradition, mm-hmm. uh, has to be Kraftwerk. Mm. And uh, I think Computer Love, 1981, just right when the technology was beginning to hit. And Mm -hmm. as you rightly said, you know, its impact on graphic design, but even how Kraftwerk packaged itself uh, as a brand uh, with an amazing identity, which we know still continues today. Absolutely. Let's hear those German wizards. So, Teal, we're sat here in the shadow of the Royal Albert Hall in the uh, Royal College of Art. Uh, What made you pursue a career in academia, as it were, and, and, uh, you know, know that you wanted to study those interests in in essentially finite detail? Mm -hmm. Um, And how do you think uh, perceptions have changed over time about how academia is viewed, particularly in the UK? I I got into education um, not only having been a student myself and done a a long career um, Mm. moving through, you know, primary school all the way to doing a PhD. Yeah. Um, But my dad was an educator himself Mm. and a designer, as I said, at the University of Texas. So I think having him as a role model and watching him engage with students and uh, engage with a community of professionals um, was just fascinating in terms of how he did that. And I think one of the reasons he had gone into teaching and one of the reasons that I went into teaching is I wanted to make a difference, and I knew he wanted to make a difference. Mm. So I think being able to do that within education, it keeps you on your toes. You you can't be complacent as an educator. Students are the drivers. They know exactly what's going on. Mm. But if I can help somebody just by asking a question, get them to think about their place in the world Mm. and what they want to contribute to it, and I think there's some value mm. into that. Um, so that's kind of why I went to education in the first place. And I was lucky that when I came over here um, to do um, my second MA in design history at Middlesex, mm. that one of my colleagues um, actually wrote, uh, ran a program, mm. uh, with, which is at, down at uh, Epsom, which is now the University of Creative Arts. Yes. And she invited me to do some teaching. So I had an entry level into British education. Mm. And I loved the fact at that point you didn't have any real assessments in terms of, you know, uh, grades like we got in the States, A, B, C, D. Mm. You were assessed, but the mark was uh, less important to the students at that point. It was mm. more about what they actually learned. And how easy do you find it to distill uh, actually describing art and the art criticism and how do you make sure that you don't get drawn into that kind of 
seemingly stuffy world that is presented in the mainstream media of what art criticism is or um, you know what uh, the academic art world perceives and what people genuinely you know enjoy on a day-to-day basis and that, that kind of thing what, what's your yeah I think that? in terms of the kind of critical aspect of it I mean that's always going to be there and in some ways if the, the criticism is going on around you it means you're doing it right <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> But I think one of the other ways that um, I'd like to think I'm going to stir it up a little bit or at least give indicators of the value of an art school experience, I've just finished a children's book Mm. looking at the art school. Uh, It's going to be published by Wide-Eyed Editions later this summer. Mm. And it's how do five professors in five studios through 40 different activities Mm. uh, in art and design help students, these kids, 10 plus, better understand the world that they live in, and mm. what can they do to make it better. Right. So how do you learn about data visualization mm. and be able to turn on and off the electricity in the art school in order to save money but also save the planet? Yes. So, you know, uh, problematizing some of these aspects, but the, the value of design yes. in relationship to, you know, kids' learning experience. And I, I would love for... Uh, Cameron and um, <laughs> the rest of government yes. to be introduced to this to better understand you know what we are giving to the economy if mm. we want to talk in financial terms yes. but to the kind of health and growth and well-being of the nation really absolutely that sounds fascinating so that'll be later this summer yeah um, so what's the next piece of music you've got for us well I'm still sticking um, into my art school days <laughs> and uh, it comes back to David Byrne and Talking Heads. And uh, I think one of my all-time favorites, and the video that goes along with this, Road to Nowhere, um, you know, it sums up what postmodernism is all about, what consumer culture is all about, and that kind of, you know, never-ending life cycle that we all go through. Mm. So, yeah, David Byrne has to be in. Can you remember when you first heard it? Oh, I do indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just absolutely blown away by it. Mm. And then when I saw the, the video that went along with it, mm. um, it just summed it up. Here's art school yeah. and music coming together, um, talking about a theoretical subject, really, in terms yeah. of modernist thinking. aspect of your life that we haven't touched upon um, is your uh, feminism and uh, the sort of work you've done to um, to progress that. Uh, can you tell me 
what your sort of broad uh, view of feminism is as, as a concept and then how you enact it on a day-to-day mm. life or, mm. or see other people doing so. Yeah, um, I am, I, I would definitely call myself a feminist, but I also call myself a humanist. Mm. And um, there are lots of debates going on within architecture and design at the moment. Where are the women uh, in these professions? Mm. And a lot of Twitter activity around this. Yes. And it's, it's something I've been very interested in. And what I did early on um, with uh, two other friends of mine is we started the Women's Design Research Unit uh, right after we went to a conference, a uh, typographic conference, mm. and there were about 30-some-odd men up on stage, yes. you know, all white with glasses and yeah. you know, all of the same age. Um, and I raised my hand and just asked the obvious question. Yeah. And um, what was really great about it, the organizers came back and asked if we wanted to be involved in a publication looking at propaganda and so, of course, gender yes. being highly politicized, and this mm. was in the uh, mid-90s. Mm. So it was kind of a way of bringing a group of women together to actually look at these issues, but specifically in the relationship to design. Because mm. I realize, as a designer, I can't impact everything in the world, mm. but I can impact, hopefully, a small corner of that world. Yes. And so that ripple effect, um, you know, perhaps would be able to make a difference in some mm. way particularly young women who mm. were looking for role models, who were looking for ways into the profession, yes. which had been a fairly male-dominated profession uh, at that point in time. Mm. It is slowly changing. There's yes. still issues, but it's <laughs> still slowly changing. So I think from that standpoint, um, you know, feminism has always been a perspective, mm. um, but I would not call myself a radical bra-burning feminist by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. And I think this is where being a designer kind of kicks in, yes. where you look at an issue and a challenge, and you say, how are we going to resolve this? Yes. Um, so it's doing workshops, it's giving talks to uh, students, mm. it's uh, giving them a space, a forum, in which they can uh, talk to each other as well, whether it's a professional organization mm. or whether it's uh, with you know a small local community. And there's different ways of doing that through design as well. So. And, and of course, you know your other fanzines, you know feminism fanzines have gone hand in hand. Uh, I suspect, um, you know, largely because it's a it's a forum in which opinions can be expressed freely and without. Uh, and uh, to be frank, a lot of the time, just with one side of the debate put across, Absolutely. which uh, is perfectly valid in that form. Uh, and I think it's fascinating, it's shaped a lot of my views uh, about feminism, um, but do you think that uh, fundings are a force for, for good in progressing that debate? Yeah, absolutely, and it, it, um, it not only progressed the debate, but it progressed the cohesion of a community. Mm. Because it was very, and still is very much, you know, women talking to other women mm. and sharing their stories. Anything from, uh, you know, questions around sexuality and gender bias mm. to uh, what is your favorite band and how do I play a guitar? Yes. Um, you know, it, 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 it's all there. And mm. I think it's really important as a vehicle itself, as a platform mm. for that discourse to take place and for people to feel like they belong somewhere. Yes, uh, they're sharing those experiences, and, and everybody's learning from everybody else. Mm. And of course, collectively, then you get a movement. And as we know, in the '90s, with um, you know Riot Girl mm. being very much that movement, with a manifesto, with yes. meetings taking place, with 
young girls picking up guitars and just like punk did, yeah. being able to, you know, one, two, three, and you've got your, your music. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of energy, again, that, that punk originally had, but, you know, in terms of celebrating, you know, the female, the woman in the music business mm. and everything that goes around that. Yes. It was just an amazing point in history, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so what's the next piece of music? Well, fitting in with that, of course, mm. it has to be Kathleen Hanna, Bikini yeah. Kill, and Rebel Girl from 
even in the internet age where you probably get yeah, all I, I think um, sitting in an archive is the most amazing experience. And we're finding here that a lot of our students um, are intrigued by archives. And so it's kind of, again, going back to the physical object mm. and seeing what that might reveal in terms of their own uh, learning. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I'd rather go to a library and yeah. sit there and dig through old <laughs> dusty boxes. Uh, it's like playing detective. Yes. Yeah. It's really great fun. So. so tell us what you're listening to while you're doing that. What I'm listening to while I'm doing that. Um, well, I think the, the, the next song I have is... Um, Probably one that's slightly different than the others, and that's Kylie Minogue. Mm. Again, I am really interested in how uh, women in the music industry can mm. transform themselves continuously mm. and stay on, on, on the charts. Yes. And so Madonna, Kylie, you know, Lady Gaga, they're all women, I think, that are doing amazing mm. work. Um, so I think that the, the song that I tend to have on my... Uh, uh, headphones is can't, uh, can't get you out of my head. Mm. Uh, 2001 and just that beat of you know yeah. it's the the syncopation on it, the kind of the drive of it. It keeps you motivated. It's yeah. good workout material, both mm. intellectually and also in the gym. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be doing the dance now, I'm sure. So, Till, uh, we've cast you into the desert to listen to these eight records. How, how do you think you'd cope if you were out there in the desert, just your records, or we were going to come onto your luxury item? Um, do you, are you the kind of person who enjoys their own company? Uh, would you be going stir-crazy after the third day? Um, after the third day, I'd probably just sigh a breath of relief. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I like people around me. Mm. I like engaging with people. Um, I mean, you have to, you know, in education. You've got yeah. to like your students. Um, but I think I would really welcome that opportunity just to be mm. able to reflect on things. Mm. And I think the, the, the list of songs that we've talked about today, there's something for almost every mood mm. that you might encounter on your, in, in the desert. Yes. Um, that, you know, you've got a little bit of blues going on, you've got some high-energy stuff to keep mm. you motivated during the day, mm. uh, you've got your chill-out music, and yes. uh, as we were talking about earlier, the, the notion of the visual memories mm. of some of these pop videos, like yes. Kylie Minogue's. Uh, video, Madonna, what have you, yes. uh, in relationship to the music. So at least you're kind of active <laughs> in your head. Yeah, and I suppose, it, you know, if your brain was engaged and, uh, you know, you're thinking about, you're reflecting on things, is there a period in your life that really sticks out as either quite formative or uh, quite a, a different or difficult period that you 
feel that you had to traverse? Um, well, every day's a challenge, isn't it? Um, making it through London is <laughs> <laughs> my constant challenge. Yeah. Um, I think, for me, the kind of formative bit was really when I got on a plane and left Texas mm. and arrived in London yes. as uh, you know, a young student. What did you have with you? What was in your suitcase? I, what was in my suitcase? Um, well, I had a mad dash that day because I had... I, um, had sold a series of photographs yeah. um, to a, a big corporation, and it was like my last little bit of money before I left and became, you know, a derelict mm. student. Um, so I really, I had my razor blade in there, which you can't have on planes now. I had, you know, matting board and you know, yeah. cut up photographs yeah. um, that came over with me. So mm. and I still have all that stuff in a, in a box in the archive. Great stuff. Um, so and where did you live when you? I um, first lived in a basement flat uh, in West Hampstead because mm-hmm. a friend of ours owned the house and he said, you can have the basement. And Great. I was there for quite some time. <laughs> You're um, not going to move out of that. <laughs> <laughs> really good digs for the, for the, for the period. Um, and then um, I had an opportunity to move to South London and, mm-hmm. and you know become grown up and buy a house and do all the things that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But I had a really hard time leaving North London, mm-hmm. like I think all Londoners tend to do, is the North-South divide. Right. Uh, I think I've acclimated a bit. I'm a bit <laughs> South Londoner now. Uh, so what's your final choice today? My, my final choice is um, from Adele, and uh, maybe slightly obvious, but I think um, her song Rolling in the Deep, which of course was a big hit for her, but I think what I like about Adele, again, she's her own woman. Mm. Uh, she's made it in the business. And her voice is just spectacular. And it goes back to that bluesy, sultrily kind mm. of Texas sing-songy, yes. lovely, you know, summer evenings. Um, and, you know, I think she's great when you want to wind down and just kind of get back in touch with things. There's a fire starting in my heart Reaching a fever pitch and it's bringing me out the dark Finally I can see you crystal clear Go ahead and sell me out and I'll lay your ship back See how I'll leave with every piece of you Don't underestimate the things that I will do There's a fire starting in my heart Reaching a fever pitch and it's bringing come to the end of your songs thanks so much for your time uh, absolutely loved um, you know hearing uh, about your life and your perceptions on um, you know all, man- all manner of different subjects yeah. um, so if there was one fanzine for first that, that you could uh, take with you and then I'll give you a luxury item as well because uh, you know I think you've You've earned a special uh, luxury today. What, what fanzine would you, would you take with you? What fanzine would I take? I think it would have to be the first issue of Sniffing Glue. Really? Yeah. Um, thank you, Mark Perry. Um, just because 
A, it was my first real introduction to the British zine culture, mm. but also that I still feel it's one of those things that you can keep going back to and mm. always finding something different as you flip through its A4 pages. <laughs> so, yeah, it would give me good reading material. Absolutely, yeah, although yeah. you probably make yourself very rich on eBay well, these days. Yeah. But, uh... Uh, you can't sell these things. <laughs> no, you really, you really yeah. can't. I would not advise that. Uh, and anything else that you, would, uh, you couldn't live without in the country? Um, I think, um, so are we on to my luxury item yet? Okay, yeah. great. I think what I would really love is a pen that doesn't run out of ink. <laughs> that would be my luxury item. Because I think to be able to record and document mm -hmm. not only my thoughts, but what I see around me yes. would be amazing. So hopefully in, yeah. in my archive yes. one day, some <laughs> PhD student can come in, open up the box and see what I was thinking and seeing at that particular moment in history. So yeah, that's fantastic. We'll give you a pen that never runs out of ink and even some paper too. Very thank you. Uh, thank you for being my guest on Desert Isolation Discs. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the memories.